time of our message today. I ask you to turn with me to John's epistle, his first epistle, 1 John. I'm in this series. I have not spoken. I don't think I've spoken here since April, I think. Uh, And the passage I'm looking at today, I spoke on about eight months ago. So I'm going to do a little review uh, just to be able to bring us to the place where this passage fits in. The passage that I'm talking about uh, that precedes this passage was from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 10. In fact, it was the last Sunday of 2018 that I gave this message, and then after that I felt the Lord's calling and moving me to preach the series from here. And so we have three more messages I'm preaching this week and two more times in 2019 to bring this to a close. John is speaking to evidently people that he loves dearly because he calls them little children. He calls them his beloved. He has a great affection for them and we're uh, moved by that and realize that God has that same affection for us as well because we are his children and He writes to them because there has been a a breakup in the church. There has been some who have left, and it doesn't sound like it's been a very uh, peaceful breakup. It doesn't sound like someone has just moved on peaceably. There seems to be some some schism, some uh, fracture within this relationship, and John understands that this, as you know, and as my experiences of being in bodies where fracture has happened, it is always an unpleasant situation. And it is a time when Satan really tries to uh, parlay that and to use that for his own glory and his own good and his own, his own uh, serve, uh, to serve himself. So um, John is writing to this group of People who look to him as this, as he is, the very last of all the original apostles and this uh, uh, father of, of their faith. And so he, he writes to them, wanting them to know. He wants them to know that they are believers. And as I uh, have pointed out many times in here, the word you, uh, we know and uh, we shall know as, as a phrase that is used quite frequently throughout because he wants them to know that they do have eternal life because there are people that may be questioning that based upon the problem that is going on within the church and also based upon what these people that either may have left have said or these people that may still be there and have, are working against what the apostle is teaching. And so John is speaking to them, and as he writes in, in, uh, at the end of this book, in chapter 5, 
in verse 13 is really kind of the, the, the summary statement. And uh, as it is in chapter 20 of, of John's gospel, in verse 13 he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And throughout this book, there is in chapter there, in, in, uh, there are purpose clauses. There are reasons why John writes. And I briefly give those to you. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, uh, That which we have seen and heard, and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He writes this in, chapter, in verse 4, as, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He writes it again in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And he does it in, in chapter 5, verse 13, as I have mentioned to you. And then also in a, another way in verse 20 of chapter 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we, so that we may know. Him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. You can't have one without the other. So John is writing this, this through in many, many ways through these, these epistles, 1, 2, and 3. But in our epistle, as we're looking at, he writes these things so they may know because... The people who are leaving are the precursors of what becomes known as Gnosticism. So these are pre-Gnostics or, pro, or uh, yeah, or pre-Gnostics, meaning that they're you know they're coming before this full-blown uh, heresy comes aboard, and where he teaches that John uh, John uh, is teaches that Jesus could not become fully uh, fully man because Gnostics believed that uh, material was evil and is evil. So how could God the Son become God the man, fully God and fully man? How could that happen? How could something of an evil shape and form take on from, be, from God? And so they had to throw out this, this doctrine of, and the Christology that is throughout John's writings, that is throughout the Bible, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so that can't, take place and then he also goes on and he says to them and what difference does it make they say how you live your life because our bodies are material and this world is material and if this world is just material and it's evil and our lives are are material uh, material and evil then what difference does it make how we live our lives what how what difference does it make what we do with our lives so go on and do anything you want to do because it doesn't make any difference because all that matters is this esoteric kind of inner light, this higher knowledge. This is why John has this play on words many times we know. He has this higher, they have this higher knowledge, this understanding that this means nothing but by this calling and being elected and chosen by God that he's anointed certain people to be able to be in the know. And so that's why people are a little bit concerned because they're saying they're in the know and too bad you're not. While Paul, John is writing and the Bible is saying that, no, 
You know and I know because we know who God is. We know who Jesus is. They don't. We do. They're the ones who are not children of God. They are the ones who do not know the truth. So we see how doctrine is so important. So that's why John, in this book, gives them a test. He has three tests, not to stump them, but to give them encouragement and the assurance that they are believers and that they are followers of God. And they do not need to worry that there is something else that they don't know. Because if, you, if you've been around people that had saying, well, you know, you really don't know what the Bible, because you really haven't studied these things. And when you study these things, or when you've experienced the spirit like this, man, it's like nothing I've ever felt in my life. And if you don't, I don't know, you better pray that you get it. And that happened early in my life, spending hours with people telling me that I'm going to have an experience and sat there as a very, very young believer in somebody's living room praying, waiting for something to happen that the Bible tells me doesn't need to happen. But yet they were telling me that if I didn't have this experience, you, you, you may be a believer, but you really aren't there. There is a deeper relationship that you can have. And so this is what's going on in the church, and John, again, wants them to know that. And then these people seem to be very self-focused and self-centered. They seem to love themselves more than they love others, so they do not care about the spiritual life of other people. They do not care about where, how other people live their lives. They do not care of the concerns of other people. All they're worrying about is this. They're not worried about this at all. And so, they're not very loving. So the three tests that I hope you remember from the other several sermons that I've given on this is that they're the test of truth, the test of doctrine, a doctrinal test. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you've got a problem. And John has very distinct and strong words that he uses. He uses provocative terms that are fighting words. He calls people liars. He says that they're dead. He says that the truth is not in them. He says that they're blind. He calls them antichrists. If they don't believe that truth, John is saying, listen, this is who they are in the eyes of God. These are not friends of God. These are enemies of God. And so John is using these provocative terms, and he uses them again and again to shake up those who may still be there, but also give encouragement, not to call, continue the conflict, but to let people know that this is spiritual warfare. This is battle going on. And you need to understand these people are over here while we're over here, because John includes himself. He uses the term we. He calls us the beloved. He, and he talks about our joy, as he says in the very beginning. He says that which we have seen. John is saying that Jesus is real. We've touched him. We've smelled him. We've seen him. We've been around him. We've heard him. We know that Jesus was a real person, not a phantom like they say. Because ongoing through this time, and what becomes even full more full-blown, is a heresy called docetism. And docetism was the belief that Jesus couldn't carry, have a, a real body, but had the appearance of a body, and then that left him when he died. So we see this, this sense of 
so confusing, but yet John is saying, no, no, I want you to realize this. I love you, and I want you to understand that this is important for your lives. So we see the truth is very important. The doctrine is very important. And then he gives them the test of obedience, and he says, if you do not understand what sin is, if you do not understand what God says, that we, how we should live our lives, if you do not walk this way as Jesus walked, if you do not understand, understand or care about being obedient to the word of God, then he says, you guys don't know the truth. If you don't care, he says then, you don't know the truth and you're liars. He says it at a few times now. He says that in the parts that we've gotten to before. And then, like today, what we're going to be talking about is that if you don't care about other people, if you don't care about the people that you've been worshiping with, and if you don't care about the people that God has called you to be a family with, he says, then you're completely selfish and you don't have the love of God within you. And you don't have the love that Christ has given you. So the test of love, the test of doctrine, the test of your morality or obedience are very important. No, he's not there to make us fail. He wants to give us that encouragement. And that's what we see in, just to give you an idea as we're looking at, I want to read verse 28 of, of chapter 2, just to kind of remind you where we came from and how important it is we understand what came before so it gives a context of where we're going to go today. And he says this, he says, And now, little children, verse 28 of chapter 2 of 1 John, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame as his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this test is what test? It's the test of morality. It's the test of obedience. So you see, John is saying, you're in this corner or you're in that corner, but there isn't any middle. See, this is as this great passage and one of my favorite in all of Scripture. See what kind of love. See, behold, it's, it's an imperative. Look, just don't glance, but look deep into this, he says. See what kind of love, and as we looked at this, he was talking about this kind of love is not earthly love. This love comes from someplace, another alien land. You need to look at this really good. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You see, John is always encouraging and always undergirding them. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's already talked about the world in chapter uh, uh, 2, where he talked about the, the, the first instance of love, where he talks about this new commandment. There he talks about a love that he loves, and then he talks, which is loving one another, and then in, in verses 15 through 17, he says, do not love the world, and that's an imperative, so he is saying, the love that we have is the love that I love, but the love that I hate is the love of the world. And anything, it is not the material world, but it is, is anything that is against God, believing in God, or the existence of God, or the teachings of God, anything, that is of the cosmos, he says. 
And that is mentioned 10 times in this book, the word cosmos. So he says, beloved, if we are God's children, verse, three, verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, beloved, if we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has that hope of Jesus coming again purifies themselves, because his second coming is something that we're longing for, and because he tells us to live a godly life, we want to please him when he comes. It's not contingent upon it, but it is something that when someone comes that you love, you want them to know that they've meant so much to you that we've prepared ourselves for you. So we see that John is writing to them and saying, the second coming of Christ makes a big difference in your life. And then he says in verse 4, everyone who practices sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is doing whatever you want to do. You know that he appeared. Now he's talking about his first coming. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now that, that's not talking about perfectionism. As you, I, I hope you remember that I said that. That it's not talking about perfectionism. It isn't that we find ourselves content and going on and doing what we want Don to do and living a life that we want to live. And regardless if Jesus cares or the Bible tells us not to do it, we just think it doesn't make any difference. We're, we're saved by grace. Who cares? And that's where Paul says, should I go on sinning so grace abounds? And what does he say in one translation? God forbid. And so he says, little children, let no one deceive you, which is what's going on. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever practices sinning it's from the devil. You see this striking terms of, of what John uses. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason why Jesus came was so that, was to destroy the works of the devil. And at that time, and that Pastor Nate has talked about, and I've talked about, is that John goes all the way to Genesis 3, where he talks about the, the offspring of the woman is going to be in battle with the offspring of the serpent. Because John says what? John says in the beginning of his prologue of his gospel that the darkness try, is trying to, to wipe out the light and it cannot. And we see throughout the ministry of Christ that darkness is trying to kill Jesus and they can't. And then we see from the very beginning it happened. And this is where John talks about today in, um, in our passage that the whole Bible is based upon this, this battle between the offspring of the woman who ultimately comes to be Christ, and the offspring of the serpent, which is everyone else who does not believe in Jesus or does not follow God or have a hope in the Messiah to come. No one born of God keeps on practicing sinning, meaning that we don't, try, we don't go to the basketball court and try to learn how to foul. We learn how to shoot the right way. We learn how to pass the right way. He says, by this is his evident. Now he says, we understand that Jesus appeared, is appearing in the future. We understand that Jesus appear, is going to, has appeared one time. He says, now, how you believe in that makes you appear a certain way. By this is evident. Again, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Now, there's nothing in the middle, folks. That's a pretty stark contrast, is it not? 
in the, nothing in the middle. You're either a, God, a child of God or you're the child of the devil. And by this is it evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And I needed to go there because that is the transition statement for where we are today and our passage. So let's ask God's blessing upon our reading. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless our time together as we continue to look at your word. And we pray that you would be with us as we are thankful and mindful of your love for us as John has given to us. What kind of love has God lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God? So I pray that we find ourselves bathing in that, in that love, that we are just floating in it this morning. And realizing that, Father, there is a responsibility that goes with understanding being the children of God. And yet, Lord, we understand that there is only one way to please you. There is only one way to turn away your wrath. There is only one way to have eternal life. And that is having Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would help us. For those of us who love you and already know this and find this assuring, Lord, we pray that you would continue to pour your spirit upon us so that we would again be joyful about that. And for those who are here today, that this may be new teaching or something that they've been struggling with, Lord, I pray that you work it out. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this passage. And again, the things that I've talked about, it's either this or that. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. This is an imperative. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, boy, if that's not black and white, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> Pretty stark. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. For the brothers, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit he's given us. And again, this is a transitional statement to next week's message. So the Lord bless the reading of his word today. 
John's talking about love here, and something that I read to you uh, by a, uh, a Puritan pastor I thought was very uh, appropriate and very powerful because he talks about this kind of love. And what he says is this. He says, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. And that so irreconcilable that cannot dwell together in the same bosom. We have already affirmed how impossible it is for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself out of our lives. Our heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispose of it is, uh, and the only way to dispose it of an old affection or an old love is by the expulsive power of a new one. Our hearts are not going to give up our old loves until we find a greater love, is what Thomas Chalmers is talking about, and is what John is telling them to think about. No love have you ever experienced before because it's not of this world. So this love is in you, then you realize that you are a child of God. And you realize that that old love, the world's love, the love of the world, the love of the eyes, the love of, it says, the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions, doesn't that again take you back to Genesis 3? Where, where Eve succumbed and then Adam succumbed to the temptation of the serpent by handing her to them the fruit? As you see, as my professor told me, that everything in Genesis 3, after Genesis 3 is a footnote. The rest of the Bible is a footnote to this. It is, a, it is the, the Genesis 3 and understanding the book of Genesis sets the stage for how we look at the Bible. And so John is concerned about loving one another. And so now we see... He talks about what? The children of the devil and the children of God. So he brings out the poster child. He brings out that icon of, of from the very beginning. What does he bring out? He brings out Cain. And this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, meaning that it's been not only it's the beginning of our teaching, it's the beginning of Je it's what Jesus taught us. It's been through the Old Testament that you love God with all of your heart. And then you love others. But here, John is talking about how you love the family of God. This is not talking about kumbaya love, folks. This is not about holding hands on uh, New Year's Eve and praying for the peace of the world. And praying for that everybody just gets along and will just get along. Because you know what, folks? As long as you exist and I exist, that's never going to happen. But he's talking about the love of the family of God here. He's not talking about love generally. He's talking about this family here. Not just Hope Church, but the church of God in Christ. And so he says he uses this example as how not to love. Because what is the opposite of God's love? It's selfish love. It is not agape love. 
It is not a self-sacrificing love. It is a love that serves self. And that's what he says the world is. And that's why the love of the world doesn't, the love of the world is something that he hates. Because it's not the love that is in Jesus. It's not to say that we don't want to love people in the world, but we just don't make that our primary love. So he says, we should not be like Cain. That's pretty obvious and pretty easy. So it goes back to Genesis 4. What comes before Genesis 4? Genesis 3. Right? And so he goes, I'm not going to wait a long time. God says, I'm not going to wait a long time to give you an example of how that battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the, of the serpent, let's do it right away with Cain and Abel. And so he says, don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because he did not know God. I mean, Hebrew says that. It was God didn't accept it his offering, and he didn't accept his heart because Abel had a righteous attitude and a, under, and a righteous relationship with God. He cared what God wanted. He cared how God wanted to be worshipped. Cain just did what he wanted to do. And so that's why he was as mad as a hornet with, with Abel, that he just didn't like him, he didn't love him, he hated him. It's his own brother he hated. And he wasn't of the evil one. He belongs to the family of Satan, of the evil one. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And this is why he says in verse 13, and he says an imperative, brothers and sisters, do not be surprised. Because in John 15, Jesus says the world hates you. Because it hates me. And so we can't expect that. We can't expect the world to love us. But do you feel hate? I mean, when you walk down the street, do you feel people hate you? I, I don't feel people hate me. I mean, it's the same thing, and this is the language that, the, that John uses, this provocative language. If you walked down, if you went and had coffee today and sat next to somebody else, and you say, why do you hate God? Well, I don't hate God. Well, do you believe in Jesus? No. Do you read the Bible? No. Do you, did Jesus die for your sins on a cross? I don't know. I think I'm going to heaven, but I don't. Yeah, maybe. Now, how, what does God look at that person? God looks at that person as a child of the evil one. Because you're either for him or against him. Jesus says, you can't serve two you can, you're either for one or for the other. God, it says, either God loves you or God hates you. You either love God or you hate God. This is this provocative language. You're either alive or you're dead. There is nothing in the middle. And so he says, the world is going to hate you. And if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, it does not take long. If you're sitting next to somebody and they realize some people are either attracted to you or it does not take long, for them to act as your breath stinks and your feet are terrible. Right? It does not take long for that to happen. I, I mean, I've told you this. My father used to say, oh, here's my son, the pastor, and the sea would part because everybody would split. And I say, Dad, please don't say anything right away. I want them to believe that I'm from an alien planet and I've got an eye in the middle of my forehead. 
But this is, this is the battle that John is talking about. And he is saying here, if you don't love one another, then you've got to realize that you are from the child of Satan. You are from the child of evil one. And you need to realize that everyone does that has this name given to them. If you are a child of God, you are going to reflect that. If you are the child of the evil one, even by you doing nothing, you reflect that. My son, Philip, I got him an internship. I'm just going to take this out of my pocket. Just a second. My son, Philip, I did an internship with. Well, he did an internship at the bank with us for the summer. And he, uh, I didn't tell anybody when he was starting, but he came. And all of a sudden, somebody ran down the hallway and said, Jim, is your son here? I said, yeah. He says, because I saw this young guy walking down the hallway talking to somebody. And the way, his the way he was talking, the way his hands were moving, and I could hear his voice, and the way he looked, that's got to be Jim's son. <laughs> and then another occasion where, uh, I, I think I may have mentioned this here, about my, our old bus driver, Mr. Calkins. Who had uh, you know who used to, who put the highways from east to west, building the interstate highways, and he was a mechanic, and he used to work on the big rigs, and he was this older gentleman uh, who was uh, kind of a, a unique person, had uh, a, a little a, a garage right down the road from our house, and um, he had you know Model T wheel pullers in his garage. Uh, he would, I would go to his, his garage later on in years when he didn't have a whole lot of business, and I'd say, Mr. Calkins, can I use your lift? I, I've got to change the muffler on my car. And you had to have a good relationship, right? I mean, you just can't walk into somebody's garage and say, hey, can I use your lift? So, you know, you were that close with him, and he'd, he'd be there, and he'd be looking at you, and you knew you wanted that guy at your side when you're going to work on your car because you just knew this guy was the encyclopedia of mechanics. So he had every tool that you want needed, so he would walk around behind you, and, and it was great. And, and uh, he had, you know, soda was like, I don't know, a nickel or maybe 10 cents or 15 cents. And he had an office, and, and, it was, uh, and in the office you would go in there with his cash register and his desk. And, uh, and then he'd have candy all the way around. And then you had to get the soda. He had to go into another room where the refrigerator was. And he'd say, he, he'd, go, he, he'd go, for me, he'd go in the other room. And come back. He came one day and he gave me the soda. He goes, you know, I don't let everybody sit in this room by themselves. I don't let every kid sit in this room by themselves. He says, but you're Val Farnacci's son. And I went, wow. So I went home and told my father. I'm sure he was very happy about that. But this is, we're identified with our actions. We're identified. And, and when they understand who we are from, there's an expectation. And we are due. We do, even by being here today, it is what God has given us, the church, so that we identify ourselves from the rest of the world. That we are not anywhere else but here. And we desire to be anywhere else but here. Because this is where God wants us to be, be identified with the people of God. And so he says, we know, in verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's what he says. Something supernatural has happened to you. 
You were dead, but now you are alive. And you can remember the words of Jesus saying to Nicodemus. You can remember Jesus talking. You can remember Paul's writings. You can hear saying that you need to be born again. You need a spiritual life. You need to be born again from heaven to understand that you have life. And it is not just a regular life. It is a unique life. And it is so unique that in these verses, the following verses, Paul uses three different words for life. In verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into, and then he explains it again in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you then, that no, one, no murderer has eternal life. So the first word that John uses is the word zoe, which is where uh, the girl's name is Zoe. That's the word for eternal life. So he says here that you know that you need to follow Christ, you need to come to Christ, you need to be born again so that you have eternal life. And no one who has eternal life can hate. Now they can, dis they can hate sin, but we can't hate, especially within the household of God. We can't hate. And so he says there, because we love the brothers, and love does not abide in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Boy, there's this, again, why is he a murderer? Again, he's using that provocative term because who is he identifying with here? He's identifying with Cain. And Cain, and who is a murderer from the beginning? Satan. So he's identifying the attributes, the paternity of Cain is the paternity of the people who hate their brother. And he says, you can, you know, that goes along with the territory. Now, there are people that may be within this congregation, not here, but in the congregation he's talking about, and the church, that actually do hate and are trying to destroy the lives of the people there. I don't discount that, and John doesn't either. But John is also saying that you need to be careful who you're playing with here. Because if, you're, if you are not loving the brothers and sisters of the church of God, you need to be careful that you are not showing the world that you are not a child of God. And then if along with that goes the reputation of your father in the paternity test of the evil one. That's what John is trying to say. That's why he is shocking these people. And then in verse 16, By this we know love that he laid down his life. And the word for life here is the word suke, which is this life, the physical life, the body. Jesus, you know, gave his life as a ransom for many. It wasn't an eternal life. He gave his body as a life. And so he is saying here that there is this eternal life that Jesus gives because he is eternal life. And that's who we have. He says, by this we know that Jesus laid down his life. And this term laying down goes back to what John 13 was about. And what happened in John 13? Jesus washed the feet. And so what did he do? He laid down his garment. He laid aside his garments and put on the, the posture of a servant and washed the feet. And Jesus laid aside his uh, Philippians 2 say, Jesus laid aside the prerogatives of being God. He didn't lose being God coming to earth, but he set aside the prerogatives of being God. He couldn't lose that. But he laid aside and he walked among us by taking on the form 
of a servant that put on flesh. And so Jesus does that. And so he goes, he gives now the precedent. And he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his suke for us, and that we ought to lay down our suke for our brothers. We are to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. We are to give our lives. That's what he is saying here. We are to give our lives to each other. Those things that we value should not be a value because we are servants of Christ and we need to pray that God gives us a value of the love that we have for the Father through Christ and we bring that value to each other. And so what does he say here? But, but in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods, and what does that mean? Again, there's another word for life. It is the possessions of life. It is the world that he was talking about in chapter 2. So we have eternal life, we've been given a body life, and we've been given things in life. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the word for bios, which is the word from biology, which is the study of living things. By this we know that he laid down his life, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. He's not saying that you need to take a life of poverty. He is not saying that you disown every piece of thing you have in this world. He is not saying you... You just become a, a hermit and go someplace else. He is saying that if you see someone in your family, the family of God, who is in need, and you can do something about it, he says, do something about it. Do anything you can to do that. Because if you listen, you can turn with me to, this, uh, to Deuteronomy 15. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 9. This has this understanding of laying down your life for your brother. And it also has the provocative terms here about if you do not... If among you, verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficiently, not just a buck, not just a shirt, but sufficiently. For his need, whatever it may be. Wow, is that not convicting? Take care lest there be an unworthy, and the word here is not, more, the more powerful word here is the word where we get the word, the name for Belial, which is the name of Satan. It's an evil, and it says here in some translations, take care lest there be an evil thought in your heart, and you say, oh, someone else is going to take care of them. He says, uh, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly. And if you have the ESV, and if you look at the bottom in the footnote, it says, or be evil. Another word for evil here. The same word about Belial. So he says, if your thought is evil, and if your eye is evil, 
looking at your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you, you will be guilty of sin. And then who do you identify with? Not with the God of love, but you identify with the offspring of the serpent of Genesis 3, of that paternity test that John is talking about. So he is saying here, this is love illustrated. He says, this is the kind of body we are to be. In Acts chapter 2, what does it say? That people met all the time. They met with each other. People, they gave us possessions as, they, as others needed. Their ownership was no longer here. And I'm not saying, I'm not chastising anybody. I'm just saying, this is what John is saying. This is the kind of standard that John gives to the people as encouragement. And he's going to say, if you do that, then be assured and have confidence that you are a child of God. Even if we don't do it as the measure as God says, if we are concerned and we do something, that makes, that again gives us an indication. It's like, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to sin. Yet we're forgiven sinners and we don't want to make it a practice of sinning. We don't go off thinking that we've lost our salvation because we did something wrong. Because God is a God of forgiveness. And he says, you don't go on practicing. But if anyone fails, he says, if anybody doesn't say they don't sin, if anybody says they don't sin, he says they're a liar. But God is faithful and just and will purify you from all unrighteousness if you confess your sins. He's not saying to be perfect. He's not saying to be perfect here. He is saying that this is the standard that the church is supposed to be. This is the test of love that God, John gives to the church. And these other guys could give one rip about the people in the church. They're gone because they're self-centered. They're, they're, they're focused. The essence of their gospel or the essence of their message is not about love. It's not about life. It's not about self-sacrificing. It's about self. And that's what the world, the love of the world is. It's word about self. And folks, was there not a time in your life when you were just worried about yourself? And you didn't care about anybody else? Yeah, we care. But I'm talking about we care about other people because God wants us to care about other people. He says, little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or just in talk. Sounds like James's gospel. But in deed and in truth. By this verse 19, now this second, pass, this second chap, uh, part of this, 19 through 24, is about the assurance in case this has bothered you, in case this conflict has bothered you, in case you're not living up to these standards and they make you feel bad and saying, oh man, you're not a Christian, you're not doing this well. You ever feel that way, saying, I don't know, am I really a believer or not? Do I understand what it is to be a Christian? I don't know, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy, I'm not joyful, I feel like I'm, I'm sinning against God, I don't feel like, I don't even know, you know, I don't know if I want to even be in church anymore. And, and, and one, one uh, writer says uh, here, which is good, he talks about this section about giving people confidence because of this conflict, and he says, this entire section suggests that the church is to become a living, giving community. It should be a place where men, women, and children are healed and not hurt, 
where the rich take genuine responsibility for the poor, where lives flourish both spiritually and materially, conflict, struggle, rejection, community fragmentation, all can lead to despair and doubt. When a community loses its solidarity, when its shared vision in life evaporates, personal faith begins to wane. Here in Chicago, I've learned, two, I've learned of two large churches whose congregations lost influential pastors due to struggle. And in case, uh, in case each case, over 25% of their people disappeared from the membership roles. As one former member said to me, if Christian leaders can't behave like this, I'm not sure if Christianity is true in the first place. And this can happen to all of us. You have been in that situation firsthand. And some of you who have not been here very long understand what that feels like. Maybe. I know as a pastor, as I've, the people who intimately know me, know that I have, my family and I, have been mistreated by churches. There was one man in a church, he goes, pagans don't treat people that way. But I'm standing here. Why? Because... Jesus loves the bride of Christ. And so are we. So are we. And so we may find ourselves discouraged. And we may find ourselves troubled. But no matter what, it may not be staying at that church, but you need to find some place to be connected to. That's why I'm very strong on church membership. But connected to, going to, being there on a regular basis, being fed, coming under the leadership of a church, because that's where God wants us to be, because that's where the safety comes that God has ordained. And if we do not, if we turn our backs upon that, are we reflecting the God of love? If we forsake as the writer of Hebrews says, if we forsake the assembling of together as some of you are doing, forsaking, does that sound loving? Does that sound positive? What did Jesus cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It isn't that he just felt put aside. It isn't that he just said, oh, where's my, where's my father? Oh, wait a minute, I'll just put some time out between us. It's forsaken. And so by our lack of, and our indifference, our lack of love and our indifference toward the church, are we not possibly showing our true paternity? That's how important this is. That's how so important it is that we do this right. And we do it with humility because it's hard. The church is messy. Because why? You and me are messy. And you've heard me joke about this many times, and you've heard many people say, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you're going to screw it up. That's what John is saying to them. And that's what he says in the book of Hebrews, following up what I have quoted there. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 10. He goes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened up for us 
through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now these people are wandering. These people are on the edge. They don't know if they want to stay in Christianity. They're thinking that I can't, don't like this persecution. I'm going to go back and be a Jew. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled and clean and washed with pure water, meaning that we've been forgiven our sins. Let us hold fast to the confession that we faith. That's why John is saying if people don't have a doctrinal test, if people are not questioned about their faith, if they don't have an understanding of who Jesus is, that's where it all falls apart. And so he says, if you believe that Jesus, he says, hold on to that confession, because that's the only solid foundation that there is. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All else is sinking sand. He says, and let us, he goes, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up each other towards what? Towards conflict, toward division, toward hatred. No, it's towards doing, uh, to start, uh, stir up a another to, one another to love and good works, not neglecting or forsaking the meeting together as some in their habit are doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we know that there's this second appearing of Christ, as John writes in that chapter that we looked at several months ago. So, that's what John is saying, and he says here in the encouragement reading, he says, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for whenever our hearts condemn us, meaning that, do I really get it right? Am I really, am I really a believer? Is this, is this really going on? Is this supposed to be this difficult? He says here, God is greater than your heart. Just go back to the confession of your faith. Understand why you've been saved. Go back to the ABCs of the gospel. And whatever we ask, he goes, Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Why? Because we know that we are in faith with Christ. And he is the only one that God accepts his life and death. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded. And that's what he goes back to. He goes back to this test of love. And so he amplifies. Every time he talks about it, he illustrates it and amplifies each test. And what he's done here, he continues to use these provocative terms. And I want you to realize that this isn't a, a, a one of condemnation. This is reassurance. Because if you give one rip about any of these tests, be assured that there's a good sign. I just had, you know, you just go for a checkup and that everything is working. Everything is good. Why? Because it says here, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's what he is saying, and that's what I want you to, if, you, if this is 
your call, if life, and you realize that it's a struggle, but you believe in Jesus, if you love the church, if you desire and know that this is where we're supposed to be, if you love the Lord with all of your heart, if you or des- desire to do that, if you love Jesus and understand that he is the ultimate sacrifice, and he is the only way for peace with God, and the only assurance that we can have that God will look upon us and say, well done, faithful servant, enter into my rest, And if you give one rip about how God wants you to live your lives, then be reassured that God has done something in your life. That a transaction has taken place. You have passed from death into life. And then you can walk out of here and say, praise God for his work in my life. If some of you have an issue with it, then you need to hear the bells whistling and ringing off and you don't see the red light in your as I say all the time you don't see the red light of the oil light coming on in your dashboard and you hit it with a hammer and you want to get it out of your face so you break the light while the oil's gone from the motor so that's what John is talking John this is the amplification of John's John's gospel John's gospel to the world through Jesus Christ Very much, go back and read the Gospel of John. He lays down his life, right? The good shepherd lays down his life. This is what he calls us. He wants us to have the desire to lay down our lives. Not to have to give it in a martyr. Not to have to give it, you know, just you have to give up your life. But to give your ongoing life to the service of others. So I pray that for some of you this is an encouragement and reassurance of your faith and for some of you you may need to ask some questions and that's why you go to a place that preaches the gospel where people who love it and there are people there who love will love you to tell you the truth about who Jesus is so let's pray together Heavenly Father we thank you so much again for your word we thank you for your kindness to us and justice this understanding of the grace of God that comes through Christ, that we don't deserve it at all, but yet we find ourselves recipients of an unworldly, an alien, another place of love that we've been given, that, Lord, we are learning together to understand, yet we will not fully get our arms wrapped around it, Lord. You've given us a taste of it as has been said. We've, we've been given what heaven will feel like, and the already is here. But Lord, we are so thankful that this isn't it. That this is not our best life. But Lord, that this is just a taste of what we will be like in heaven. And what it will be like worshiping you and loving one another with a love that, Lord, we just don't understand, but yet we can see through the gospel. And through the practice that you've given to us by your spirit to one another here, Lord, we can testify of many times that we've seen the life-giving work through the lives of the people here. Lord, at Hope Church, we can see that people have given in times of need in a way that is so loving and provocative. We rejoice, Lord, and we thank you for that. And yet, Lord, we know that there may be times in our life when we're going to be called to do other things. And Lord, when we find ourselves in struggles, when we find ourselves wandering, we realize that crouching at the door, as like 
with Cain. The evil one is right there, Lord. And we pray that we would focus on the gospel, that we will turn our eyes upon Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the very author, the very, uh, the very pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. Let us turn our eyes to him, Lord. I, I pray that you will do that. And we rejoice in hearing your word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.